Good morning, everyone. First of all, I want to say thank you to everyone who's contributed this morning. And then also in the preceding weeks, different people helping. JP was MC last week. Josh was our preacher. Thank you to Bevan for preaching the week before. I mean, I had to smile last week when Josh dashed to the laundry to grab the shirt that he wore when he was preaching to give us some kind of continuity when he had to switch to live. Well done, son. I thought it was pretty awesome. Well done, Andrea. Um, we're rocking and rolling as we go. And I also want to thank the elders who've given so much of themselves in recent weeks, especially to help us as pastors just respond to these incredibly challenging and demanding times. And I want to thank you guys for your prayer, your love, your support. I also recognize this is the first service back for some of us since Pastor Robert and uh, since Steve Thomas passed away. And maybe even in the worship this morning, you felt all kinds of emotions, questions surfacing, even as we started to worship and to pray. Those kind of emotions, those kind of questions, that's just normal human experience. You see, your spirit is needing to uncover and process what's in your mind, what's in your heart. And your spirit's been working on these things with or without your permission. And, but when you come into a place where your spirit is drawn to the fore, some of those other things are also going to come and need processing. They're not crowding in. They're actually being brought to the surface by the act of worship. You see, Jesus told that woman at the well in Samaria that in true worship, your spirit and the truth all about you, about God, all of these things is brought to the surface. And, well, we can't escape, and, and we shouldn't try to the depth of what's going on inside of us and the truth of what's going on inside of us when we want to really worship. I was chatting to someone the other day who described coming to a service in person for the first time in a couple of years. And, and they were pretty much doing fine when everyone said hi and everyone was doing stuff. And it was a couple of weeks ago when we were still able to meet in person. But they said, once we started to sing, they just wanted to cry. They couldn't explain it. They couldn't, but all that was going, um, and, and as I've thought about it, I've realized that when your spirit starts connecting to the Lord, the Lord wants to access all those other things that he sees and he knows are true about us. Obviously, it also needs to be true about him. The one we worship must be true God. And so as we come today, we, we're continuing in worship by listening to God's word. And I want to lead us in prayer as we uh, transition. But maybe just before I, I dive in, just want to say that I'm checking in with life group leaders and just with each group and each leader trying to discern what's unique for your group what's next steps for your group, but also whether there's some things that we can do collectively as life groups that help move us forward. And if you're not yet in a group, I really commend them to you. They have been so essential for many of us during this time. 
And, and to those leaders, guys, I just want to say, we appreciate you, we honor you. So let's pray together. Father God, I want to thank you that we have the opportunity to come, even online and in the name of Jesus, to seek your glory, to seek your worship. And we have to come as who we truly are. We're not disappointed by that. Lord, thank you that it's by our spirit, but it's also by your spirit that we're in communion with you, Holy Spirit, as we seek to worship. So, Father, I pray as we come to your word, which is truth, which has been breathed out by your spirit, that we may truly Honor you, glorify you in response to your word. Give us insight. Give us understanding. Awaken us in and to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we, in a sense, are picking up on the new year, someone described it as 2020 version 2 because we're back in lockdown. I certainly hope not. I hope we're looking add some more encouraging and better things as the years move on. But we do have to recognize these are tough times. And as we're looking at this, I want to take us to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And, and when I first was thinking about it, it struck me that we're in a phase in society, in, in wider contexts, and certainly in the church, of looking at rebuilding, reconstruction, and um, when we were passing the budget in November, when some of these thoughts about what to preach in, in the early new year were coming to me, uh, we spoke about relaunching our ministries and, and getting back on stream. And obviously since uh, the, the second wave has come, we've had to uh, kind of recalibrate those expectations. But it doesn't mean that we don't want to see things restored, see things renewed, see things rebuilt. Now, as I scan the commentaries on uh, this book of Nehemiah, there are several themes that are very popular about this book and that often form the, the strap line for the particular commentary. And it's the themes of rebuilding and reconstruction. Or else um, Nehemiah is held up as a, as a model for leadership. And uh, the book is seen as a, a, a kind of blueprint for Godly project management and change management. Uh, certainly the book has to deal with overcoming our fear of opposition and the way that people often trip us up in our desire to do the will of God. The book contains spirituality, prayer, revival and renewal. It contains moral reforms. It contains debt relief for the poor. Uh, all these are present in the book. But they're not really the main point. You see, the main point of Nehemiah emerges out of all these good things held in the biblical and the historical setting. So today I want to set the scene. I want to kind of zoom out and look a little bit at where the book is. And as a result, hopefully open up the main point of the book by which we can then interpret the other valid insights uh, that are out there for us. 
in the ancient format, the writings of and about Ezra and Nehemiah, who historically were contemporaries, were actually one book, and they were written by several authors, and they include memoirs or autobiographical uh, records from both Ezra and Nehemiah. And different sections of uh, their books, Ezra and Nehemiah, overlap because, as it were, it follows the characters. We first meet a guy called Zerubbabel, and then we meet meet Ezra, and then we meet Nehemiah. Um, So it follows characters whose stories sometimes overlap. So there isn't a strict timeline. It also follows a, a, a principle of first things first. But the first things uh, in the mind of the person who eventually compiled this was not so much chronology. First things was year one, year two, year three. First things first was about theological order. And so he groups theological themes and works their way through them. But there are some interesting patterns that help us also unpack this. Now some of the Chronology, in other words, the timelines are fairly easy, but some of it's tricky because, as I've said, it kind of jumps around in the story because it sticks with a person and finishes their story quite often. Now, as you go to Ezra in, uh, in the beginning of the book and then in the middle of Nehemiah, you see that there are lists of returning exiles. And if you just look at those lists, they pretty much exactly the same. There's one or two minor changes in terms of names mentioned. Um, You get a sense that everyone, when you just first read the thing, it looks like they all arrived together. So Zerubbabel and then, you know, Joshua and then Nehemiah and so on. Um, But when you read their individual stories in the book, it's quite clear that these are consolidated lists didn't matter what date they arrived in Israel. They were people who returned from exile. But they actually returned over a period of two or three generations. So, for example, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah both headline the lists of, of the, the people returning from exile. But they are both governors of the same territory. And they clearly weren't governors at the same time. And we know that their respective uh, times in office as governors <coughs> was almost 90 years apart. So clearly, although they occur in the same list in the same verse as people returning from the exile, that is not telling us who all arrived together. It just tells us they arrived. Nevertheless, there is this broad historical setting that I want to focus on and give us insight into that pretty much all of us can agree on. InterVarsity author John White, who's written several things, and a book on, on the leadership strategy of Nehemiah says, the setting of the book is the rebuilding of a nation. And I want to add, by rebuilding a city. You see, almost 150 years before this story, in 587 B.C., the Babylonians had sacked Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah, and they'd carried its surviving citizens off into exile. Babylon, in turn, had fallen to the Persian Empire, and King Cyrus, who was the new Persian king, reversed the Babylonian practice of uprooting all the people they've conquered and taking them to other places. And he reckoned he could have a more coherent empire by allowing his conquered peoples 
to live in their own lands. And so it wasn't just Judah and Israel. We know from um, records from other kingdoms during that time that he issued that everyone who'd been carried into exile by the Babylonians could go home. But what that meant for Israel, and they're kind of going, he didn't just do that by himself. Of course, God got him to change the kind of the exile policy of the Babylonians. And so people were allowed to move back to their own land. They were encouraged to worship their own gods. And as it were, they, um, they could build their own temples as long as they paid their taxes. As long as they submitted to the new Persian Empire and this, of course, made Cyrus ridiculously rich because initially there was like this relief factor. Yay, we all love Cyrus. And so they were heading back and very careful to pay their taxes and not necessarily rebel. Now, during this, this, this kind of started a, a resettlement, 538 BC. And so we have three great leaders of the, the post-exile restoration of the nation of of the Jewish nation. So the first one we meet back in the beginning of Ezra is a guy called Zerubbabel. And I think he got that name because he came back to a lot of rubble in Jerusalem in about 538 BC. And it's his job in Ezra 1 through 6 to rebuild the temple. He starts by building an altar, making sure all the offerings there. And then you read the story and how much opposition they faced and letters going to and fro between, um, between Jerusalem back to the, uh, the center of empire. And then almost 80 years later, we meet our next character of the book, 80 years later, who is Ezra, who returns, according to the dating inside the book, around about 458 BC. So more or less 80 years after Zerubbabel got there, and about 55 years, maybe 60 years after the temple itself uh, had been rebuilt. What does Ezra do? He's famous for reinstating and restoring scripture, and, and in particular the writings of Moses, to the practice, the thinking, and the teaching, and the preaching of Israel. So up until that point, there'd been sacrifices. Up until that point, they had kind of restored what we would technically call the cult of Israel. But what he comes back, and he's, he's almost like one of the first in a tradition now of teaching spiritual leaders that is going to become, and, and they bind themselves to the law. And so he's like a forefather of some of the characters we meet later in Jesus' time. But in this story, unlike the Pharisees, he's regarded as a good guy. Now, interesting, when Zerubbabel has finished rebuilding the temple, the next thing we read about him is that there is a great assembly for celebration. They host the Passover, and there is this massive festival. When Ezra reads the law, what do we get? We hear about the ministry of Ezra, and it finishes with what? Another great assembly of confessing um, and, and, and then stepping into, as it were, a renewal and a, a spiritual revival based on doing the words of God. So Zerubbabel, then Ezra, then Nehemiah, and he returns about eight years after Ezra has returned, about 446 BC. 
So they became contemporaries, and we read about Ezra in the book of Nehemiah, for example. And, uh, and whereas Ezra's focus was on scripture and teaching and preaching, etc., Nehemiah comes back as governor, and he rebuilds the walls, and he repopulates Jerusalem and changes the fabric of, of the daily experience of the people who live in the city. But just as is rubbable, so too with Ezra, so too with Nehemiah. His season finishes with what? Another great assembly. People are gathered, and there is outbreaking, and, and people are both dealing with their, their wrong stuff and, and their disobedience to God, and they're making right with God, and they're giving and receiving forgiveness as is right, and they're making sure that they're not carrying ancestral baggage back into this land. Um, and, and, and eventually, out of this place, these people are weeping before God, and we get that famous line, in Nehemiah 8, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. So, here's a sidebar comment. Um, and then I'll just make the main point for this morning. First comment is, the great assemblies that we see in these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, are clearly high watermarks. But the main story of Ezra and Nehemiah is what actually happens before. What happens through and with and around Zerubbabel and the people he led, and then Ezra, and what those people's response was, and then Nehemiah. And so what happens before and after each of these festivals is actually the main story. It is about what God does through and for his people between these assemblies that is the actual restoration. The gathering is just its celebration, its culmination. Sometimes it's breakthrough. But understand this, and it's very important in the structure of, of the book. That were it not for the building of the temple, were it not for um, Ezra's work of restoring the word of God and the teaching and preaching of God's word, were it not for the work of Nehemiah, those great assemblies would simply have been times of loss and grief. And you know, as I think about it, explore, we are in sort of at the moment a kind of exile. And some people are able to return a little bit sooner than others. And some people are able to get into worship and others are struggling. And whether that's worship online or worship in, 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 in really, really small groups or finding ways to give expression to our spirituality, um, one of the things we're missing is literally being together. It was great when we were able to just meet in the school field, out in God's green cathedral, as Jackie and Lindsay love to call it. And it's great to be together, to worship, to confess, to do ministry, to grieve, to celebrate, to see revival, to see God at work in people's lives, and so much more. But this is the sidebar comment. As much as we love those gatherings, those great assemblies, we need to see that it's what happens before and after those assemblies that will really determine our legacy. What happens as a result, even of this morning, 
whether we meet online, whether we're able to meet in person, what is the main outcome? That when people look at it, they say, this is a work that God has done. The meetings matter, make no mistake. And in New Testament, the gatherings is urged and recommended. But they matter because we believe that they equip and enable us to see God at work in between the meetings as well. So that's a sidebar comment. We really don't want to get in the habit, as Hebrews 10 cautions, of not meeting together, of not having the assemblies. We miss out on so much. But we need to know that something so critical is going to happen in between, before and after. So that's a sidebar comment when we look at that kind of big picture. But what's the main point? What's the main point of this book of Nehemiah? Well, we mustn't miss this. You see, the first exiles under Zerubbabel return and they build an altar straight away. So immediately there's prayer, there's communion with God, there's fellowship, there's sacrifice, there's priestly obedience, and it is restored even before any temple foundations were laid. And rightly so. One of the first things we do, if we're ever going to be of help to the world, is we make sure that our communion with God is in place. And then, in spite of tremendous opposition, resistance, poverty, hardship, and struggle, this temple is eventually rebuilt. They even had to dig and lay new foundations because the Babylonians literally tore the place apart and burnt anything that could be used as building material. And, and so in spite of all this, they do it. And the place of worship and the place of gathering has been restored to the center of their lives. And there's a place for communion with God. And guys, we are never going to be helpful in any other sphere of life if we have not found that through in the New Testament sense. We have been joined to Jesus Christ. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about us as living stones. Joined together, yes, to one another. But we are laid on Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. This is a spiritual house in which God dwells. And, 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 and so here we are. And, and we recognize in this space that we first have to have a foundation in Christ. We first have to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And we do have to trust in His atoning sacrifice, through His death on the cross. My sin cannot be forgiven and dealt with in any other way. And that means I cannot bring righteousness and healing and hope in any other way than by first re-establishing peace with God, Romans 5 verse 1, communion and fellowship with God, repeated multiple times throughout the New Testament. So there's this theme as we look at Ezra of restoring that place of communion. And I just got to ask myself, Craig, how is your communion... How is your abiding? How is your fellowship? What are the offerings you're making to God? How are your prayers rising? How are your songs during this time? They really matter. It really matters. That we get that place of communion and connection and the presence of God and the worship of God 
Because we're in relationship with God by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see these guys get it done. And for over 50 years, back to Jerusalem after uh, Zerubbabel, they keep on going with, as it were, this small expression of their worship, their faith, their spiritual prayer. To use New Testament terminology, they were doing church every Sabbath. They were keeping the annual festivals. The sacrifices were being made. And then we come to that second phase and we get a degree of moral and ethical revival under Ezra. He's preaching his heart out. He's showing people the word of God. And they get back to reading the very words of God that were available to them, primarily the writings of Moses. Even better, they got back to doing some of these words. So that's the context. Now let's read the first few verses of Nehemiah chapter 1 and ask ourselves what's the main point of this book. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Some had stayed in the land Others had gone back. Now they were regarded as a remnant. Many, including Nehemiah, even 90 years after the first had returned and were starting to rebuild. What's the news? How are they doing? What's happening in Jerusalem? And they said to me, verse 3, those who survived the exile are back in the province. But they are in great trouble and in disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burnt with fire. When I heard these things, says Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Think for a moment. Why was Nehemiah so heartbroken? I mean, worship was back in place in Jerusalem. There was an altar. There was fellowship. There was sacrifice. There was communion. Scriptures were being regularly preached and taught. Yet Nehemiah is still absolutely devastated. People are in trouble. They're in disgrace. And this is the setting of the news Nehemiah received. You see, the context is huge. Nehemiah is Devastated, heartbroken, in mourning and weeping before God for days. Not because the people weren't in church. Not because they weren't reading the Bible. 
He was devastated, and here's the key point of this book, that in spite of worship and the word of God, the city itself was still in ruins. Structural and social transformation does not automatically happen when we start to pray, worship, and open our Bibles. And Nehemiah is devastated because their faith is making no real difference to the actual conditions in which people had to live. You see, city walls and city gates were essential in ancient cities and towns. And their functions include protection. Most obviously, these walls and gates kept out the enemies and the invaders of the people inside. But if you understand something about the gate, for example, the gates were the place of rule and justice. It was at the gate that the elders sat to listen to the plaintiffs and the defenders, uh, defendants and maintain the right balance between mercy and justice as prescribed by the law. The gates were a place of provision. You see, trade was regulated through the gates. Scales were tested so that you couldn't crook one another. <laughs> Business was done at a literal stock exchange at the gates. And yes, taxes were levied for the sake of all the citizens if it was remotely a healthy town. Protection, justice, provision, trade, economic access, and sanctuary, hospitality, and connection to the surrounding areas and to foreigners were all regulated and reliant on what happened in this relationship between walls and gates. You see, without walls and gates, well, you've got a situation where the powerful and the wealthy could probably take care of themselves or pay someone to take care of them. Without walls and gates, the criminal, unethical and destructive elements of society could flourish and, and they had no fear that they would be denied their evil ambitions. Without walls and gates, it was the weak, the vulnerable, who would suffer terribly. And therefore, Hanani understands. Nehemiah understands. Without walls and gates, not only is this community in trouble, it is in disgrace because it's how we treat the weakest and the most vulnerable that determines how much value God places on our society as a whole. Whether our culture can be seen as something that honors the Lord and glorifies Him or actually works against Him. So Nehemiah weeps for days. Not because they weren't doing church, but because the way they were doing church resulted in no social transformation and actual structural change that would help people with issues of safety and protection, justice, economic access, 
and sanctuary and relationships and meaningful community. And so after nearly a hundred years of being back in the land, everyday people were still without protection. Still no normal place to turn for justice. Still without a natural vehicle of economic access. Still without meaningful sanctuary. See, these are the things that healthy community provides, amongst many others. And that's why... I don't, just be, I don't believe that this book is just about rebuilding a nation. We rebuild nations when we rebuild cities and societies. You see, this is not some form of Christian nationalism or Jewish nationalism. It is about the intent of the law as Moses wrote it and intended. And Jesus said, we're not going to take a jot or tittle from this. We, we're not going to delete any of the intention of God. And so explore as we move into 2021 as a church of the New Testament, as in communion with other congregations in PBC. But we've got to start with ourselves and ask this question. Are the benefits that we have as the people of God in communion with God being felt by the citizens of our city? We'll see that Nehemiah took time to have a good look at what this time of exile showed to him about the city, its people, its protection, and the things that healthy cities provide for all its inhabitants. And we no longer live in cities that have to have physical walls and gates to provide these things. But we must ask the question, what do these structures look like today? What do the structures that provide protection look like? What do the structures that provide meaningful justice for everyone, not just the wealthy, not just those who can buy, justice for everyone? What do the structures that provide economic access in our city look like? What are the structures that provide safety and sanctuary for the alien look like? How does prayer and fasting combine with that instead of replace that? Nehemiah is not against spirituality. He turns to God. He cries to God. But something in his spirituality births the transformation of a city and eventually a nation. And how are we to overcome and prevail in the face of relentless opposition, which we will see he faced during this time? And what are the weapons we carry alongside the bricks of building that, that are unique to our contribution in rebuilding a city? This, I believe, will be our journey into Nehemiah as we discover the purpose of God in rebuilding society, rebuilding a city.